So it is uh, April 23rd, 2014. Our message is called Red Herring. Um, Red Herring. We'll get into that more in a minute. I wanted to show you something that God is doing, though. I have been hearing prophecies about a shift in the heavenlies. Uh, They've been confirmed in a bunch of places. We can feel something's coming. Well, at every major juncture in our ministry career anyway, when the Lord was moving, there was a preemptive movement from the enemy, trying in some way to fracture, trying in some way to discourage, in some way to prevent what was coming. Well, I'm here to just kind of give a Pentecostal laugh in his face. Ha-ha! Ha-ha-ha! It's not happening. There it is. So... With that said, I wanted to show you something that I have been drawing on napkins and uh, tabletops and wherever I can, and I can't get away from it. So I want to show it to you so that you will see it and we can begin to pray. Um, Can y'all read that? I know it's a little bit vague, but in the center of this circle, it says one association. One is an acronym. It's going to mean our new evangelism. Association. One is a new corporation that is going to be formed for the purpose of having many churches but considered one body, having many activities but one goal, many countries but one mission, many styles, whether that's worship or preaching or presentation, but only one purpose. I think it's going to stretch from Africa to Mexico to Romania. I think it's going to stretch from Texas to Virginia to Chicago to Louisiana in the name of Jesus. We are about to unite over the essentials, things like a commitment to worldwide evangelism through missions, a commitment to the unconditional, unapologetic moving of the Holy Ghost in our services, a commitment to evangelism domestically in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. This country's not going to hell on my watch. It's not going to happen. A commitment to church planting and orthodoxy. We want to stop short of a denomination. We do not want to control anyone in the network. We want instead to communicate passion and vision and then watch brothers unite to accomplish things that are bigger than any one church. Can y'all say amen to that? This is going to be the one association. And of course, that is kind of a double entendre. It is one association with each other, but it's one association in Christ. It's a play on the Hebrew idea of the word ichad, where you can be plural and yet one. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. We're going to foresee a day in which an ordination spans many churches, not just the whims of one local pastor. We're going to see a day when missions outreaches are not the sole domain of one fired up church, but an association of like-minded believers. Can y'all say amen to that? I can say that within this year, this is going to get formed. I would have done it this week, but it seems that another battle on a legal front is taking uh, some of our finances. I think that in the next three to five years, we may see churches in Alabama. We may see churches in South Texas. There are men that are rising up from our number that are called to pastor. 
that are called to do amazing things for God. And this is a way that we can stand beside each other and stretch around the globe. So that a man in Africa in a village called Rianchogu is actually a part of a larger brotherhood that supports them. So that when a church of 100 outgrows their sound system and they're now a church of 400, that sound system does not find its way to a dusty cabinet. It finds its way to a church in need. So that when someone is called to do youth ministry and there is a need within the association for a youth minister, we have a means to communicate it. We're going to experience the benefits of a denomination and avoid its trappings. In other words, we're going to act like we're a kingdom under one king. Amen? This is what's going on in my heart and mind. And while this is going on in my heart and mind and I'm pulling my closest friends together and talking to them about how to do the impossible, I'm reminded that we've done it before. I'm reminded that it's always been difficult. I'm reminded that there's always been an opposing force working against us. And that brings me to the rest of our topic. Is that okay? While we're talking about the one association, I want to talk to you about Genesis 11. The devil is a lying devil. Is that a true statement? John 8, 44 says he's the father of lies. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue. His desire is to see men unite over the wrong things and fracture when they should be standing for the right things. His desire is to bring unity where it promotes rebellion and destroy unity when it promotes submission. His goal has always been to oppose the moving of God. So in the book of Genesis... In the first chapter, the 26th, 7th, 8th verse, we found verses that say things like, be fruitful and multiply. When we get off of Noah's ark, you find verses that say things like, spread out all over the earth. And in Genesis 11, we have the first one world order. In Genesis 11, we have the spirit of the Antichrist working through leaders like Nimrod to unite the world without God as its king. To unite the world in a mandate that is opposite of God's mandate. God said spread out, but they decide to clump together. God said be fruitful and multiply. They decide to make a name for themselves. And this is where we pick up in the story. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Do you hear the direct opposition to God? So many times I've taught about the bricks. I've taught about the tar. I've taught about the mortar. I've taught about the unified world rebellion. And today I saw something different. Before we get to that place, let us finish the story. But the Lord came down to see the city. And the tower that men were building. 
The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called or was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. The enemy is mobilizing his troops. Under banners of environmentalism, under the idea of some modified League of Nations, we find lost men speaking the same language. We find men uniting around one idea. The Bible is archaic. Its morals are backwards. And we don't need God anymore. I could preach to you tonight about eschatology. But as one brother said at my house the other day, whatever your end times position is, it's about to change because you're about to live through it. If you expected a secret rapture in the middle of the night that left your folded clothes on the bed for your neighbors to see, hang on, friends, because we may actually have to face an antichrist. But that is not our text tonight. You could read this story and come away with so many ideas. What did they build the tower out of? What did they build the tower out of? If they built the tower out of bricks, I bet somebody was tempted to form a church that banned bricks. You could miss the whole point of the story. You could say, you know what? Those bricks were used for sin. You could go to your Bible then and say, I see that in Exodus 5, those bricks were the product of slavery. They were used to oppress the people. You could say, I've examined all of the references to bricks in the scripture, and far more of them are negative than positive. And you could build the church based on the exclusion of bricks. Let's call that the first church of wood. We won't use bricks. We're going to use wood because, after all, bricks are a sign of rebellion. You move forward in your first church of wood and a church down the street has built one out of bricks. You say, how can you people do that? Your work is based on sinful bricks. Of course, they look at you and say, how could you build a church out of wood? Our Lord was killed on a cross. And as foolish as this sounds, that kind of pettiness has divided the body of Christ. Do you understand that the devil was able to get people together under one idea, selfish ambition? He was able to get people together under one idea, let's make a name for ourselves, but under the banner of Christ, we can fracture over bricks and wood. What makes our union and our bond so weak weak, and they're so strong? Well, there's appeals to a selfish nature. Tell me, was the Tower of Babel really about bricks? Of course not. How about Galatians 5? Turn with me there while we keep the first church of brick in mind. Galatians 5, 
Pick up with me in verse 19. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. What is the most obvious problem with the Tower of Babel? It's idolatry. We want a name for ourselves, not a name for God. It's selfish ambition. We want us to look good and we don't care about God's mandate. It's discord. We're not walking in harmony with the Holy Ghost. It's dissension. We are fracturing the work of God. It's envy. God, I want the name you have for myself. But you could simply ban bricks. Would it solve the problem? It really wouldn't, would it? It would solve the problem temporarily, huh? Because if enough people got together and we banned bricks, then how are they going to build their tower? But then the tower's not really the problem. The tower is a symptom of the problem, isn't it? Welcome to the prohibition. Welcome to every single attempt to legislate morality that there has ever been. We're not really talking about bricks and talking about wood. We're talking about the area that Christians call freedoms and restrictions. See, when we say that we are going to ban a behavior that the Bible does not ban, and we do it because someone has a heart issue, you ban the behavior, but you do not fix the heart. This is like putting a bandage over a bullet wound to hide the blood that is dripping down the leg. You feel better about it because it looks good to the outside, but it's done nothing to fix the problem. Can we all agree that the plain of Shinar would have been a better place if there were no bricks, though? And yet God allowed there to be bricks there, didn't he? Perhaps the bricks in the end are simply a test to see where the people's hearts actually are. Let's not miss the point. Let me start with something that is so clear that even the most obstinate Bible scholar among us ought to be able to see this. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 14. Say there when you were there. By the way, if you look at Jeremiah 43, 9, there was a good use of a brick. Have you ever looked at scriptures and said the far more weighty number of scriptures about this subject are negative than they are positive, so therefore that excludes the positive? This is the way that many commentaries treat the subject of alcohol in the Bible. They say, well, there's more negative warnings than there are positive endorsements as if the Bible is voting against itself. Why might there be more negative warnings? Because there's a sinful nature, and people tend to do wrong things. Are you in Deuteronomy 14? I never desired to start a church that would become known as the first church of alcohol. And yet, from the first day that we began a church here, 
because we would not erect rules that God did not erect, people began to say things about us. I remember a young man named Nick Slaughter sitting in my church saying, Eric, I heard what you preached today. That was amazing. This is, I didn't think that there was another Bible teacher out there like one that he liked until I met you. Do you know that you could be preaching to larger audiences? Do you know that God could do something really amazing if you would just leave that stuff out? How tempting that is. I mean, after all, I was preaching to an insignificant handful in most people's eyes. Today, almost all of them are in ministry, and the thing that they have that sustains them is an unwavering approach to what God's Word actually says. We do not have the right to amend God's Word. We do not have the right to add to God's Word. We have every right to address the central issue of a sinful, unbelieving, wicked heart that expresses itself in sinful ways, though. Let us not confuse the issue. Are you in Deuteronomy 14? Here comes verse 22. Don't you love to talk about tithing in the house of God? How many of you know that an alcohol scripture is buried in the midst of tithing scripture? And if this alcohol scripture is thrown out, then so is the tithes. Be sure, verse 22, to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine, and oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to eat a meal, a feast, a festival when you bring a tithe into the house of God. You're supposed to take some representative portion of what you're bringing to God and celebrate in his presence with that. But if the place is too distant and you have been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe because the place where the Lord chose to put his name is too far away, then exchange your tithe for silver And take the silver with you and go to the place your Lord God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like. Say whatever you like. Say it again. Whatever you like. Cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink. Wine or other fermented drink. Is that in your Bible? Both of these words indicate a fermented beverage. You can argue about what the other fermented drink is. Most translate it beer, but some simply say other fermented drink. Or anything you wish. Is that written in your Bible? Or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there. You and what? Your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and do what? This one scripture ought to settle the subject forever, but it doesn't. It doesn't because every time we see somebody building a tower out of bricks, we point to the bricks as the problem. The problem has never been bricks, friends. How many of you live in a brick home? Is your house built on rebellion? Were you trying to assemble a great name for yourself in opposition to God? Bricks are not the problem. Were they a problem in Shinar? 
Sure they were. It was an expression of their sinful heart. Should we tear down your brick house because they built a tower out of bricks? God himself commanded his people that when they came from a far distance and could not carry their offerings to use their silver to buy whatever they liked and eat it in his presence and rejoice. Do you think that might be a shock to many Christians? How about Numbers 28? I know it is already cutting against some grain. Man, when you talk like this, Eric, you're just encouraging those young people who are not mature enough to handle this to go out and do wrong. Well, how will they ever learn to do right? And if you ban everything that a man could touch and sin with, what is not banned? I would love to get rid of TVs. I'd like to ban all of you from TV. I'd like to get rid of smartphones Good Lord, let's just go back to an abacus. You don't need a calculator either. Because I've seen people sin with all of those things. But where is the end to our restrictive holiness? Why would God tell people to buy wine or a fermented beverage or anything they wish and eat it as a household in his presence if it was sin? It's not sin. How many freedoms do we have that we don't use well, though? Start giving up your freedoms in the hope that you'll restrain the sinful nature and you will descend into Phariseeism, but you will never tame the sinful nature. Are you in Numbers 28? Here comes verse 6. This is the regular burnt offering instituted at Mount Sinai as a pleasing aroma. The regular burnt offering. Not a special weird burnt offering. The regular burnt offering. An offering made to the Lord by fire. The accompanying, say accompanying. The accompanying drink offering is to be a quarter hen of fermented drink with each lamb. Pour out the drink offering to the Lord at the sanctuary. When you brought a burnt offering that was a lamb, God said, bring him a quarter hen of fermented drink. You didn't get to drink this one. You got to pour it out in his presence. Apparently, the Lord liked when you rejoiced in his presence, and he liked when you brought something that was valuable to you and poured it out in his presence. How much of the world has this wrong? How many people have set up a standard that is different than God's standard? Let me ask you, if you stand flat-footed and you say, well, I know the Bible says it, but I still believe it's sin, don't you make God guilty? What happens when we read that Jesus' first miracle is providing wine for people at a wedding? Oh, well, we try to excuse it as not really about that. I will not make Jesus guilty because we cannot teach people to crucify their sinful nature. Instead, let us address the motive for the tower rather than the bricks. Somebody say, I'm listening, Pastor. It's probably, rather than take you through every Older Testament example, because somewhere out there in the recesses of Christendom, someone will hear this and say, Pastor... That was Old Testament. 
Well, let us then examine Old Testament as we move into the New Testament. Numbers, the sixth chapter, contains for us the idea of a Nazarite. There were some famous Nazarites like Samson. One of the things that made his vow a special vow was that he could not touch a fermented beverage. This distinguished him from every other Israelite. Say every other. What made a Nazarite different was he did not get to act like every other Israelite. Now, the Israelites were already different from every other nation in the world. They followed the Mosaic law. They had God as their God. He was their king. Among a distinct people group who already had prerogatives from God, lived out in their culture, there was yet one more distinction. If while living among believers, you would like to even further dedicate yourself to something, here's one way to do it. John the Baptist is a great example of that. John the Baptist did not eat bread and he did not drink wine. Locusts and honey were his food. Jesus, however, came eating bread and drinking wine. In the Older Testament, a priest handled wine every day. He handled it as a part of his duty to God, and all Israelites drank wine, except Nazarites. We have both ends of the spectrum between the Nazarites and the priest, those who don't and they're not doing it is acceptable to God, and those who do and they're doing it is acceptable to God. Now, what's in our nature? Well, brick versus wood. I imagine the priests thought the Nazarites were not as holy as they thought they were. After all, the priests worked every day in the Lord's presence, and all the Nazarite had to do was abstain from some things. And I bet that the Nazarite looked over at the priest and said, he still gets to participate in every family function. If my own father drops dead in my presence, I can't be there. And he thought himself superior. And thus, we have a problem whether you're a Nazarite or a priest with what? A sinful nature. Not a problem with bricks and wood. Let us pick up then in the New Testament in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke, the seventh chapter, and the 33rd verse. For John the baptizer, or in this scripture, if you like, Baptist. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say here is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I want you to understand that whether you abstain and abstain to the Lord or you indulge and indulge to the Lord, people are going to talk. It's what they do. I also want you to understand that whether you practice a doctrine that says you're free or a doctrine that says you're not free, neither one has the power to affect your sinful nature. Your sinful nature is sinful. Those of you that don't like the word sinful nature, your flesh. Not everything your flesh desires is sin, though, is it? Is it wrong for you to breathe? Stop breathing and see how much your body likes it. Not everything it wants is sin. Are we so immature that we cannot divide between things that are pleasing to a body and things that are sinful for a body? Not every sexual act is sin. 
But the church for hundreds of years taught that unless it was for the purpose of conception, it was sin. Because anything that your body enjoys must be sin. What was the fruit of that teaching? Among the worst perversions the world's ever seen, and children everywhere are still suffering for it. Jesus was an example of a typical priest, a man who was around wine, handled wine, and drank wine. John the Baptist was an example of a typical Nazarite, a man who did none of those things. Are we really going to say that either one of them was wrong? I don't think that we can. Turn with me to Corinthians, the 11th chapter. Say there when you were there. The 11th chapter, let's start in the 17th verse. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. How would you like to get that letter from your pastor? How many of you had moved your letter? In the following directives, I have no praise for you. Your meetings do more harm than good. Well, that's heavy, isn't it? Come on, say that's heavy, pastor. If you get together in a church service and the Apostle Paul says your church service was more harmful than not having a service, that's heavy, Pastor. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. What has Paul really hacked off about? Divisions. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Come on, say there have to be differences. When we built a leadership team, or rather God assembled it, there are differences among us. There have to be. There should be. I want to believe that those differences are actually a good influence that cause us to look at every side of an issue. But while there are differences among us, we are not divided. Divided angers the Lord. Divided is an insult to the spirit of Christ because the world can unite around a Rolling Stones concert. But the body of Christ wants to argue about bricks versus wood. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. I bet they were trying to, but they weren't getting it right. For as you eat, each of you goes on ahead without waiting for anybody else. What does that speak to? Selfishness. One remains hungry. Another what? Another what? In a church meeting, at what they're trying to do is the Lord's Supper. What did they do? Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Do you mean to tell me that the Apostle Paul, who was in the third heaven, the Apostle Paul who saw Jesus, the Apostle Paul who testified before kings and Caesar, the Apostle Paul who took the rods beating, who was shipwrecked in the sea, did not have the authority from God to ban drinking in this church given that they had had meetings where the church itself became drunk? But he didn't. He did not go beyond what is written. Instead, he shamed them for their sinful behavior. But he did not put a prohibition on bricks because that wouldn't do any good. Are you hearing me, church? You may not like what I have to say, but you're going to have a hard time. Your position is untenable. Do you know what that means? It means it cannot be supported from Scripture to prohibit alcohol. 
It can't be supported from Scripture to prohibit speaking in other tongues, but people do it. Is that right? What gives a man the right to exert the Word of God? You say, well, I deem alcohol to be a harmful influence in society. Well, that's the same argument the cessationist says about your moving in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Neither one of you are right. We do not have that right. Paul didn't even take that in a church where they were drunk at the Lord's table. Let me just get knee deep in it. Is that all right? Nick thinks it's all right. Alex, is it all right to get knee deep in it? Let me just go ahead and confess, I come from a Baptist background. I absolutely, piously believed that every sip of alcohol was sin, and I watched men that I respected sneak little beers in the refrigerator and hide it from their church and every other thing. When I was introduced to the concept that this was not biblical, it really, really bothered me. But we're confronted with something always. When the biblical standard is not the standard that you would have chosen, do you move the biblical standard or do you move your standard? This is a difficult place to be. What do you do when you look around you and you see people misunderstand it or they understand it fine but they abuse it? Do you step in God's place and you make new rules that God didn't make? Turn with me to Colossians 2. I told the story about Nick Slaughter because the man was grossly offended with what I said. It bothered him. It bothered him in his core. And he went and researched and researched and researched. And he came away with one idea. I cannot bend the word of God, not for any man and not for any reason. And I think that it will make him a successful pastor in his lifetime. Because if you bend it in one place because of your discomfort, what's to stop you from bending it in the next place? I'm going to have quite a few warnings in this message. The first one is to my brothers that hold the position just like I once did, that their personal piety is something that is very pleasing to God. Piety in the English language simply means that you're a very religious person. And that could be wonderful. Or... It could be something that is really not all that wonderful. Turn with me to Colossians 2 and verse 20. Say there when you're there. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world. Basic principles of what? This world. Why as though you still belong to it do you submit to its rules? God's rules or the world's rules? God's rules or the world's rules? Do not handle... Do not taste. Do not touch. Would you have said these are the world's rules? But the Bible says these are the world's rules. Holiness defined by what you do not do. Right standing with God defined by what you do not do. It says I am righteous because there are no bricks in my house. What happens if you have envy and factions and discord and idolatry? and selfish ambition in your house, but you have no bricks. So, well, ideally, Eric, I would have neither. You have that right, just like every Nazarite did. But please don't think that because you don't handle, you don't taste, and you don't touch, you're holy. It's funny how people like to tell you, though, 
what they don't do. That's an amazing thing. It's like you never read this next line. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. A human command and a human teaching is destined to perish. This is why Paul did not go beyond what God told him and he did not ban for the Corinthian church the use of alcohol. That did not at all mean that an individual Corinthian could not say, you know what? This is something that my sinful nature is delighting in. And last year it caused me a problem. This year it caused me a problem. And in the name of Jesus, it will never cause me a problem again because I'm never going near it. If something's killing you, get as far away from it as you possibly can. But you know what? Not even the Apostle Paul said that to the Corinthian church. That was a man's personal decision. Such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. Hear this next phrase. It's the one that's important. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. You may be very proud that you've never entered into a bar in your life. All of the reformations began in a bar. Every one of them. They had no church building to meet in, and so they were forced to the local pub. And in the local pub, they found something. They had an organ or a piano. And these are all of the early church hymns. So how holy are we when we say, I've never entered into a bar? Well, more holy than Martin Luther, I guess. More holy than Uruk Swingley. More holy than John Huss, who gave his life for the faith. More holy, more holy, more holy. But is it more holy? So, but Eric, those places are associated with sin, and they weren't associated with the sin in the Reformation? Brother Zeke, when he got to Virginia, was looking for a building. I was so proud of him. Zeke comes from a thoroughly Baptist background. Zeke met a man, and he liked him. And he went to his place of business, which happened to be a bar. And he said, you do what you do here. And you and I are on different pages about that. But I would love it if you would let me hold the meeting that honored God here on Sunday mornings. The guy was moved to tears, didn't know what to do. In the end, God did not plant Zeke in a bar. But I love that the young man believed God was big enough to establish a kingdom of righteousness in the center of a bar. The man that came and preached during the week that most of my friends got saved took a topless bar, bought it, left a pole up in the center of the room, called it the gathering place, and has been seeing people saved by the thousands for 20 years now. He wanted to prove that God could recycle trash. That bricks in and of themselves were not unholy. It's what you do with them that are unholy. Now to my friends in here who delight in your freedoms. And you're excited about your freedoms. And your freedoms are maybe as important to you as Christ, although you wouldn't say it that way. Turn with me to the book of Galatians. The 13th verse. You, my brothers, were called to be free. Somebody say amen. Amen. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. 
Rather, serve one another in love. When you take something that Christ has allowed you to do and you use it in a sinful way, you shame Christ and you give the church of the bricks or anti-bricks cannon fodder. I heard that in this congregation, there were men who slurred their speech because they drank too much. You will be no friend of mine if you abuse freedoms that Christ himself died for us to walk in. Are you hearing me? If you are falling to some sin and you go back into that sin, you will find no safe quarter with this pastor. Sin kills. While it's wrong to sit back and say you are holy because you don't, it might be even worse to say I'm holy and I do in an unholy way. Church, the world so desperately needs to see Christians that do not have a rule book but have a relationship with the living God and they don't need somebody else to legislate their morality for them. They have a passion and a vision to please Jesus and they would never want to break his heart. See, what happens when you make the rules is the church just works around the rules. We have to address the central issue. What is it in a man that makes him want to alter his state? He's not happy with the state he has. You can't very well be right with Christ then, can you? If you're in this church and you are drinking to the point of inebriation, you sin. You sin. And what's worse than that? You tempt brothers with a weak conscience to raise rules to protect you that offend God. We do not have the right to recreate for God what he should have written in his Bible because someone else cannot control themselves. And why is it that we're concerned about alcohol, but we're not concerned about all of the other things that are going on? Say other things. Do we need to say what those other things are? Church, they're obvious. They're obvious. They're written in the fifth chapter of Galatians. They are so obvious that at some point you have to say we are straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel when the best we can do is talk about how much somebody ate or drank. That is the least of the issues. It's a brick. It's not the motivation for the tower. Are you tracking with me? You don't have to like it. You don't have to agree with me, but do you understand me? 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12. This is one of the more misunderstood things in the word. Do you see that in quotes, everything is permissible for me? This is not Paul saying this. He's quoting them as saying it. That leaves it up to you to decide whether it's right or wrong. But Paul seems to be quoting a Corinthian proverb. Everything is permissible for me. And he adds, but not everything is beneficial. He says again, a quote, everything is permissible for me. But then he adds, but I will not be mastered by anything. How many times do you have to fall to a sin before you decide, I don't have any business contending in that area? Church, we need to wake up. 
You shouldn't have to have somebody force prohibition on you. (laughs) You shouldn't have to have somebody come and say, I don't think you should be doing this. You should want to please God so badly that when you get near the edge of a balcony, you're so scared you'd fall off, you don't do it anymore. But just because you can't figure out how to sit on a balcony and enjoy the view, you do not have the right to tell me where I can sit. We'll read the 14th chapter of Romans together. It's so conclusive that I don't even know how we could have the discussion other than it must not be in your Bibles. Let me say something, though. If you see a brother and they drank too much, or you see a brother and they took too many pain pills, or you see a brother and they did so many things that people do now, if you love them, how could you not say something to them? How could you not go over and say, brother, you're better than this? Put that down. Oh, well, pastor said alcohol's not wrong. That's not part of the conversation. It's not whether alcohol's wrong or right. It's you right now, you. See, that is relationship. You want to paint with a broad brush to avoid having a difficult conversation. But the gospel of Jesus Christ address every man where they are. Is it wrong for any man anywhere to have wealth? Of course not. But the gospel of Jesus Christ confronts a rich young ruler and confronts him with his problem. He didn't say that to every human being. He talked to Nicodemus about becoming born again, but he didn't talk to him about being filled with the Holy Ghost. He talked to the woman at the well about getting filled with the Holy Ghost, but never talked to her about being born again. He knows what you need. And it's not up to me to excerpt it, add to it, or I don't have the right. I wish I did. If, I would, if it was King Eric time, friends, you would not like the tyranny you would live under. Because pretty well, if you don't do exactly what I do, I'd be mad at you. I know y'all are all so much different than me. You'd all be driving big, nasty, offensive four-wheel drive trucks. There'd be no such thing as a Prius. We'd wake up with bacon and coffee and go to bed with pork loin and steak. And when we couldn't fit through the church door, we'd rebuke fatness. Turn with me to Romans 14. I may not win any awards for this message, but I hope I settle the issue forever because from here on out, I'm going to tell people, look it up online. I'm not talking to you about it anymore. Here comes Romans 14 and verse 1. Accept him whose faith is... Accept him whose faith is... It's amazing how many times the first verse of this this paragraph is overlooked. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is eats only vegetables. A man who is in a position of weakness may need to restrict his own behavior. You cannot enforce that restriction on everyone else, though. You know, John the Baptist did not come preaching, you have to eat locust and you have to eat honey. Jesus Christ did not come saying, you have to drink wine and you have to eat bread. They were both examples of holiness. And you may lean towards one or lean towards another based on where you need to stand. 
And there's not a thing in the world wrong with that. But there's something terribly perverse about thinking that you've got such a mastery on this, you get to tell everybody else how to do it when the Bible itself doesn't. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on the one who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God who has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or fall, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each man should be fully convinced in his own mind. That doesn't mean stubborn and stupid. It means convinced of where you need to stand. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord. He who gives thanks to God and he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Are you really thinking that in Deuteronomy 14 when these men converted their tithe to silver, traveled all the way across Israel and showed up, took their silver and then bought a special meal along with all of their offering to give to the Lord and ate it in the Lord's presence and drank the fermented drink in the Lord's presence and rejoiced, we're not doing it for the Lord. God commanded them to do it. Did that mean that everyone had to buy a fermented drink? No. He said, or whatever you wish. But if you brought a drink offering to the Lord, it had to be fermented. That's God's standard was not my standard. That's God's standard. And for years, I read over it and didn't even see it in the Bible. By the way, the man whose conscience is weak and cannot eat everything, are we going to stay in weakness? Is there a day when we will put weakness behind us? How interesting it is then that in Isaiah 25 and verse 6, speaking of the day death has been rolled away on a mountain with the Lord, do you know what all God's people will do? They'll eat the finest of food and they will drink what? Aged wine. Why on earth do you age wine? If you were at the Feast of Abraham, friend, that might be your first glass of wine in your life, but it will be there. I had a friend that used to say, no, the Lord will bring me iced tea. And it's funny. It's funny, except that that kind of says, Lord, I'm too good to drink what you're serving. It gets a laugh, though. So, Eric, we're not there yet. You're right. We're not there yet. And nobody should allow something that they approve of to cause them to die. You need to work this out with fear and trembling. But don't expect us to do it for you. You know why? God put his spirit inside of you. And he gave you a Bible that I'm preaching from fervently right now to guide you. In the name of Jesus, don't let something you approve of put you to death. And don't think that because you stand back and say, I don't, I don't, I don't. You are somehow more holy. The Bible actually calls you weak. Eric, I don't like that you said that. I don't like that I said it either. Let me say this, though. I'm weak enough in some areas that the Lord turns it into a strength. You know how? 
I know where I'm weak in it and I won't go near it. And I ask him to help me. When I walk into a hotel room, all right, this is just Pastor 101. When I walk into a hotel room, the first thing I do is unplug the television set. I don't need to be watching some demonic box when I'm away from my home, friends, and family. I don't do it. Not on a mission field, not anywhere. Anybody traveled with me? You've never seen me watch a TV in a hotel room. When my family is out of town, I don't surf the Internet. I'm not ashamed to say I'm weak. The Lord will take that acknowledgement of weakness and he will make me strong and immovable. Some of you think you're a lot stronger than you are and your behavior is proving that you're not. Do you hear me? Oh, I can do what those brothers are doing. You try to bring guilt on them as if they coerced you into it. No, you know when you sin. Stop it. Stop trying to bring down the rest of us because you can't control your own body. You know why? I can live with or without any of these things. They're not a problem. The fatter I get, the more beer I drink. The less uh, fat I am, the less beer I'm drinking. There could be a correlation there. I've gone many years with and without. Gone years with, then years without, then years with. Done the same thing in many other areas. Sometimes I just need a little gut check that says, how much do I like this? But let me ask you, church, before you throw a stone at me, how's your coffee habit? Or your refined sugar? Or your McDonald's? See, it's always somebody else's pleasure that offends you. God did not set up this kingdom as a matter of food and drink. It's not. It's a matter of holiness and right relationship with him. If something's eating your lunch, get help. Get away from it. And surely don't stand behind this pastor's doctrine and blame me for your sinful nature. Would you say that's clear, Jim? Okay. So why don't we do this? Romans 14, 14. As one who sits, I'm sorry, as one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am, I am convinced that no food is unclean in and of itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is. Say, if I can't do it in faith, I can't do it at all. If I can't do it in faith, I can't do it at all. Anything that you do that does not spring from faith is sin. It's sin. You can't watch your favorite HBO miniseries in faith. It's sin. You can't drink your morning cup of coffee or have your fifth Hershey's bar in faith. It's sin. But do you really want me following you around counting the grains of salt that fall from the shaker on your french fries? I don't think it's my job. In fact... Not even the Apostle Paul thought it was his job. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy your brother for whom Christ died. You know what the clear presumption is here? That if I eat french fries, you feel like you have to eat french fries. That's what he's saying. Don't put your brother in a position that if you're eating french fries and his faith won't allow him to, that he thinks he needs to. This doesn't mean you can't ever eat french fries. It means you don't put your brother in that position. So those of you that do not have alcohol in your homes, don't ever expect me to bring it in your home. I wouldn't do that to you. 
But when you come to my home, if you search through my cabinets looking for what you think is sin, say, well, we just don't know. We could offend somebody. There's thousands of people out there, so we'll just stay away from it. Do you honestly think that's what we're speaking of here? It's funny how we can twist a scripture to try to make it fit our belief system. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. I'll let you meditate on that. You're smart people. Bricks in and of themselves are not evil. What you do with them certainly could be evil. If Cain picks up a brick and smacks Abel in the head, Cain is evil. The brick's not. Do we ban bricks? So it just seems that some people use bricks more than they use wood. Because it's sinner's favorite choice doesn't mean that you have the right to ban it. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. You want your life to be something that people honor? Consider what your brother needs. Put him before you. That might mean that if you're sitting at a table with a man who's not fully settled this issue in his heart, you don't put him in a spot to cause him to waver. I'm not going to call you out, but I can tell you there are men in this church that I've said, as far as I'm concerned, just one brother to another, not the Lord speaking, but just me as one brother to another. I don't think you got any business being anywhere around alcohol for the rest of your life. But I don't have the ability to enforce that. And I can't put that as a rule on our church and a requirement for acceptance. I think the whole world knows that I smoke cigars. They didn't. They do now. But with God as my witness, I've looked many of you in the eye and said, in the name of Jesus, I don't think for you this is a good thing. Your life, your history has shown that this would lead to something else. But you know what? It's not really up to me. It's up to you. It's your master you stand or fall to. But in the end, when people fall, they tend to blame their teachers. How about we just be holy? A red herring. These are red herrings. Herrings kippered by smoking and salting them. They turn reddish brown. A red herring in the English language has become an idiom that means to distract from the central issue, to digress or divert from the relevant issue. It seems that these things have such a pungent smell that a poet by the name of Cobbett wrote about them being used to distract hunting dogs from their track. You know what's wrong with talking about bricks instead of the Tower of Babel? There's a whole lot bigger issues going on. See, right now, our church is in the midst of a life and death fight. One that started a long time before most of you ever got here. But recently is more intense than it has been in years. And as the prophecies have said, there's a shifting going on. 
We need to be careful that while talking about bricks, we're not actually creating dissensions and factions. And that we're not using our freedom as an excuse to cover up evil. Red herrings avoid dealing with the real issue and instead set up a straw issue. How about we deal with the builders of the tower and not the bricks themselves? Would that be okay? Would it be okay? I didn't know whether to share this, but I've already gone far enough to share it. Don't get your knickers in a twist if you see a Christian with a beer. Because every Israelite had that right. God commanded it. And you know what? Maybe that Christian won't get his knickers in a twist or disqualify you from the body of Christ when he watches you watch a four and a half hour LSU football game. See, there's room all the way around. You say, well, those those things are entirely different. Aren't they always? But the man who sits around with his Christian brothers and celebrates LSU's victory over Alabama, I thought I'd get an amen for that, does so to the Lord, even if he's not praying and fasting while he's doing it. Because God put us here and gave us things, literally speaking, for our enjoyment. And it is not wrong. Patricia, I don't get an amen out of an LSU comment. But you want to throw your hymnal at somebody who sits with his three best friends and drinks a single beer, praising God while he does it? Guys, we need to get out of the Pharisee business. How many of you like further study? You go home. Can I provoke you to study something? Look at Genesis 43, the 34th verse. Anybody got the ability to find a uh, Greek Hebrew dictionary? When portions were served to them at Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anybody else. How's that for gluttony? So they feasted and what? Drank freely. I got to tell you, uh, you guys that don't like the NIV, you'll love me for this. That's terribly translated because that's not at all what it says. But I'm not going to tell you what it says. Let me tell you, King Jimmy didn't get it right either. All you got to do is look up that phrase. And Joseph celebrating with his brothers the symbol of united Israel with Christ at their head. And NIV said they drank freely. I'll let you look that up. Let's move on to more productive discussions. Ephesians 5.18 says something. Ephesians 5.18 says, do not... 5.18. There we go. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It does not say do not drink wine. Do not make wine. doesn't say don't hang around with people that make wine. You'd exclude yourself from Christ. It says do not get drunk on wine. I'm not going to go into this now, but he says that leads to debauchery. I, I don't, I'll teach it in a different setting. Sometime you ought to look at that scripture in very close connection with Genesis 43 and verse 34. But I'm not going to do it for you. Some of you will just take it as a justification to sin and others will hate me for saying it. Do not get drunk on wine, saints. Don't do it. What should you do? 
get filled with the Holy Ghost. And if you get filled with the Holy Ghost, I bet you could handle a glass of wine or have the strength to restrain from it and it not hurt you one little bit. And you'd be so full of the Holy Ghost that that's all you'd care about. How about Ephesians 4, 22 through 24? You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Not everything the flesh desires is deceitful, but much of what it is, is deceitful. To be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You can take a man with corrupted fleshly desires and put him in a jail cell where he has no access to anything and you do not keep him from being a sinner. But you can put a man in the center of a pub and he can start a reformation if his heart is right. History has proven it. This pastor has proven it. Now, if what you hear me saying is that you need to go drink, you have a corrupt mind and need to get over yourself. If what you hear me saying is that you're wrong, if you don't drink, you also have a corrupt mind and need to get over yourself. If you think that we're trying to build a church around life in a bar, you're not listening close enough. But the first Protestant churches that the world ever knew started in bars. Just like at Babel, largest force, larger forces are at work than just brick making and wood making. We have a struggle between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. We're either going to unify around the principles of Christ or you're going to unify around the children of the devil. The Tower of Babel is being rebuilt in our midst. The World Wide Web is a part of it. It's giving us a common language. The United Nations is a precursor to it. They're united in one thing. They hate Israel and they want America to fund the budget. 2 Corinthians 13.10 is not something we're going to turn to, but Paul himself said, I have authority to build you up. I do not have authority to tear you down. Those of you that think I don't go far enough in this, I want you to understand, I don't have the right to restrict or encourage wood versus brick or meat versus vegetable or water versus alcohol. Paul didn't have the right. I don't have the right. My mandate comes from Ephesians 4. It says he appointed some to be apostles and some to be prophets and some to be pastors, teachers, and evangelists to prepare God's people for works of service until we all reach a unity in the faith and become mature. That is my mandate. And I cannot prepare you for works of service by teaching you things other than what is in the Bible. What would happen to you if I raised up a standard other than the Bible and then you tried to stand on it somewhere other than here? Welcome to people's first year in college. Colossians 1, 28 and 29 is my highest goal and I need you to learn it with me. It's in my back pocket now, but I think Susan's going to put it on the screen. We proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. My goal is to present Christ, not some standard other than Christ, Christ, not a standard that competes with Christ, 
Christ. And he's enough. We don't need to add to him. We don't need to take away from him. When people fall in love with him, you don't have to tell them what they can and can't do. I need you to consider two scriptures before we move on. And it's late, but we're nearing the end. Are we all right, Matthew? Have I made your toes sore yet? Hebrews 13 and verse 17. Say there when you're there. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Who has to give an account? Guys, I shouldn't have to command you. I'm telling you, what does the scripture say? The scripture says your leaders have to give an account. How do you think it feels then to a leader to find out after everyone else about someone's behavior? If I'm the one that's responsible at the end of the day for the doctrine of the church, how do you think it feels to me to find out I was number nine in the chain of phone calls or not at all in the chain? Does that feel right to anybody in this room? You're free You're free to minister. You're free to love. You're free to build. You are free to use all of your gifting. But don't you think that since the leaders in the church are responsible for the church, you ought to keep us in the loop? They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be... So that their work will be... You know how heartbreaking it is to hear that somebody perverts your teaching for their selfish gain? You know how heartbreaking that is? How many of you know it's more effective to walk up to a child when they did the thing that was wrong than talk to them about it three weeks later? Could y'all cut me a little slack? If you see something that concerns you, don't call 12 people before you call me. If you see something that concerns you, we have elders in this church. We have Eric Stevens, we have Matthew Pirro, we have Steve Richards, and we have Charlie Brown. Those are four elders in the church. There is an order to ministry. It's found in Ephesians 4. I'm not going to explain that to you. It shouldn't be that hard for you to figure out. Of all people in this room, I should not be the last one to find out that there's an issue. Obey them so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to... See, I'm going to be doing just fine. I'm going to be preaching the gospel. I'm going to be casting out demons. I'm going to see people saved and healed. That's what I'll be doing. But for you to grow right, if God puts you here, we have to have a relationship. Not layers of relationship, a relationship. Honestly, can we all be as close as Matthew and I are? Probably not. But we ought to have some level of relationship. Examine your motives and see if they pass the test. How about the 18th verse? Because it's important. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I want you to tell, I want to tell you that's my desire. I'm asking you to pray for me. You think that I don't have some part of this right? I can live with that. We actually love it when you disagree with us. I do. Sometimes I learn because sometimes I'm wrong and you're right. If you disagree with me and you've already shared it with me, 
then pray for me, love me. But 14 years ago, I set out to found a ministry. It took me two years just to figure out how to walk outside of the church I was in. 12 years ago, we founded this ministry. Do you hear that? 12 years ago. 10 years ago, the Piros joined us. Nine years ago, the Richards joined us. And three and a half years ago, the Browns joined us. When you came here, at whatever point you came here, you were standing on something that someone else built. Certainly, you have some responsibility to them for that. You heard the expression, stand on my shoulders, call yourself tall? We've built something here. I'm asking you to honor it by honoring the authority structure in the church. I'm not trying to be overbearing in my use of authority. I'm simply saying, if I'm responsible for it, don't you think I ought to know about it? Wouldn't you want to? First Peter 2, 13 through 17. Wow, got quiet. Are y'all mad? Sam, are you mad? Good. Sam's our newest, newest brother in the church. On a Monday night, Sam got set free. You know what I love doing a whole lot more in RUN doctrine? I love to watch people get set free. I love to watch demonic powers crumble at our feet and men rise up in the power of God and stand up and say things like, I have peace. I love it. I love it. And I found out it doesn't much matter whether they eat Cheetos or don't eat Cheetos. God wants to set them free. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom to cover up evil. Live as servants of God. See, we do not have a lot of rules. You know why? Jesus didn't. First thing God ever said to man after putting him in the garden is you are free. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. We don't have a lot of rules. All we really have at the end of the day is that we're trying to function in the positions God put us in. And if you think we function poorly, then pray for us. Help us. Certainly talk to us. You know, we have this little saying in privacy in our ministry team. We can deal with anything that's said. It's what goes unsaid that it's hard to deal with. How would we know? Is there anybody in here thinks that I would fail to correct sin if I knew it existed? Huh? Well, Irma, why are you laughing? Irma, did we have tense conversations this week? But you love me, don't you? Do you believe I love you? Irma, do I shy away from saying what needs to be said? Guys, I'm trying. And I'm probably a pitiful and poor excuse for a pastor, but I'm getting better every day. Help me. Help me. Talk to me. Grow, grow me up. I've been having this Romans 14 discussion since at least 1997. It's getting old. I mean, it is. It's not a problem for me at all. But I care about you. I do. I care about you a lot. I'd intended to read to you Nehemiah 4. I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but turn, to me, turn with me to Nehemiah 4.11. This is our last passage tonight, so even little Riley will get to go to sleep. Have you ever struggled with the idea that you wanted to accomplish something for God and the other guys are just not playing ball? 
You ever been let down by people? Welcome to ministry. Do you know how many weeks I met saying I was starting a church and no one was here? How many times I preached my heart out for three hours to five people? How many times I invited guests and when the guests came, the five members that we had didn't? Go listen to a message called Trust But Verify and imagine something. If you don't think I'm preaching to 30,000 people, you're not listening carefully. There were six people in the room. Six. I know a little something what it is to persevere. And I want to tell you, people let you down all of the time. This teaches you to rely on the king. And it proves that your heart is in it for him and not them. We have a choice. We can start forming churches based on presence of bricks or the presence of wood or the absence thereof. Or we can help each other. Are you in Nehemiah 4? Also our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. I need to set the setting for you, and I won't take too much time to do it because you're tired. Nehemiah has a job. He's going to build a wall. But when the people heard something wasn't going well in the project, you know who they came and told? Nehemiah. You know why? He was the one that had been commissioned to build the wall. He's the one that enlisted them to help them with the project. And he did not fail to respond to their needs. Maybe they'd been under governors that really didn't care about them before. Maybe they'd been abused in every way possible before. But how long can you punish Nehemiah for somebody else's sins? Nehemiah was a righteous man, and he was doing everything that he could. And when he heard this, look at what he did. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places. You think our ministry has an exposure? You think we're weak in some area? Stand in the gap and help me. Hmm? I listen to other pastors sit and talk about their sheep all of the time. I hear it. I hear it even from my friends. They can't help it. I can tolerate that for all of about six or seven minutes. It's about like somebody criticizing Jennifer. I think it's funny for the first few minutes, and then I realize, wait, that's my wife. Who do you think you are talking about my wife like that to me? That's how I feel about you. I don't let you have exposed places when I talk to other people. I hope you'll reciprocate that with me. Posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He goes on to say, friends, when we're under attack, have a sword in one hand and a building tool in another. I'm trying to build something. I set my sword down, you have my back. Jennifer and I are facing a lawsuit for doing exactly what God told me to do. Exactly what God told me to do. What the elders agreed we should do. At the end of the day, we face extraordinary pressures. And besides all of that, a crushing concern for your welfare. Where are you at, Dustin? While he was not here, we prayed for him daily. Am I lying? And he's here. 
I'm going to stand on the fruit of our work. Please don't step in here and think that because you work hard for a year, somehow or another, you have supplanted our need. I was here doing this when none of you were because God called me. And if all of you left, I would still be here doing it. But I know that I got brothers that would never go anywhere. I know that. And I'm very proud of you. The rest of this chapter closes with one idea. Nehemiah said, if you see them advancing and there's low spots in the wall, sound the trumpet and let's form a huddle. I'm sounding the trumpet. I'm saying, maybe the guys in the house don't have everything right. Maybe the elders aren't getting everything right. Certainly your pastor is not getting it right. Maybe you don't think that our axe team should be the axe team, but I'm proud of them. I think that the work that Brent and Mike and John and JJ do is outstanding. I admire them. They're twice the men of God that I ever was, and they're still growing. But at the end of the day, we're either going to stand together and realize more's happening than just bricks, there's a spiritual clash, or God will knock this down. I've seen it. There's churches that are little more than piles of bricks today that were once towering strength. I'd like to ask you to support us in prayer. I'd like to ask us to support, ask you to support us with your actions. You may think that coming here really does or does not affect anyone else. I notice whether you smile or not. I notice whether you're doing well or not. And I know that I was put here to serve you, but occasionally wouldn't be a bad idea for you to let us know when we do something good. And certainly if one of our brothers is drowning, don't wait till they're dead to call us and then blame it on our doctrine. Let's not do that. Y'all feel me? Okay. And I want to close with an affirmation for you. I want you to know that for your vision, for whatever it is God has called you to accomplish, and I know most of them, whether it's a little church in Alabama, whether it's ministry around the Black Sea, whether this season it's homeless ministry, I would die for your vision. I made that commitment at a men's retreat some years ago, and some of you have seen me attempt to make good on it. I haven't backed away when somebody put a gun in my face. I've never thrown you in front of harm's way. I'm asking you to reciprocate and have the same attitude towards me because I hadn't done anything to hurt you. If we're going to grow as a family of God, you do it by awarding the other person trust. You hear me? And when you award them trust, God's got all kind of liberty to move. He does. Now, some of you are scratching your head going, what is the terrible problem? There's not one. I preach like this to avoid them. I preach like this to stop them. The truth is we're pretty united, but I can see that the devil doesn't like it. I can see he doesn't like where we're going, and I know he'd like to stop it, and I'd like to cut his head off before he gets close to my heels. Let's stand to our feet.